0: Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode number 252. My name is Mandy Moore, and today I'm here with Damian Burke.
1: Hi, and I am here with Coraline Ada Emke. Wow, I actually showed up for (laughs) once. I'm very happy to be with y'all today, and
2: I'm very excited about the guest that we have today. Her name is Eva Penzi-Mook, and Eva is a principal designer at 8th Light and the author of a new book called Design for Safety. Before joining the tech field, she worked in the nonprofit space and volunteered as a domestic violence educator and rape crisis counselor. At 8th Light, she specializes in user experience design, as well as education and consulting in the realm of digital safety design. Her work brings together her expertise in domestic violence and technology, helping technologists understand how their creations facilitate interpersonal harm and how to prevent it through intentionally prioritizing the most vulnerable users. Eva, I'm so happy to have you here today. Hi.
3: Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
2: So uh, if I recall correctly, and it has been a while, so Mandy, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I think we open with uh, the same question that we've been opening with for 251 other episodes. And Eva, that is, what is your superpower? And how did you discover or develop it?
3: Yeah, so my superpower is my ADHD, actually, and specifically my ability to hyperfocus. And I didn't really acquire and start to develop this until the age of 25, which is when I was diagnosed. And for people who don't know, hyperfocus is basically exactly what it sounds like. It's a state of very intense focus that people with ADHD will sometimes go into. And it's not something you really have control over. It's not something you can just turn on or off. And it isn't necessarily good or bad, but for me, I'm really lucky because it often gets triggered when I start to code. So as I was starting to learn code, and then I sort of switched over to focusing on design and and front end and like CSS and SAS. But as I was learning that stuff, it gets triggered all the time. So I can sit down and code and oftentimes like hours have gone past. And so long as I don't like miss any meetings or forget to eat, it's totally a superpower.
2: That's, uh, that's amazing. And, uh, I've talked about before I live with, uh, bipolar disorder. And, um, when, uh, I tend to stay in like a low grade manic state as my resting place. And I experience very similar things with that hyper focus and just like losing hours on a task. And, um, sometimes it's very positive and I get a lot done and sometimes, uh, I'm like, what the hell did I do? Right. But uh, but I think it's great that uh, you know, I've been talking to some other folks with ADHD, with bipolar, and kind of uh, kind of like the judo moves we can do to take something that, you know, really negatively affects us in a lot of ways and finding a way to yeah, to turn it around like you said, and use it as a superpower. You know, those are the strategies we develop when we live with things like this. And I'm I'm always happy when people have figured out like how to, you know, get something good out of that.
3: Yeah, totally. And like, realizing that you have this thing that happens, because I'm sure it's been happening my whole life, but I didn't recognize it or understand it. And then just being able to like name it, you know, and like, see that it's happening is so powerful. And then to be like, Oh, I, I can like, maybe do certain things to try to get into it, or just being aware that it's a thing. It's like very powerful.
2: I'm kind of curious, Eva, if you don't mind us talking about ADHD for a little while. Sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. I have a friend who is uh, actually a couple of friends who were very recent, very recently diagnosed with ADHD, and they had so much trouble in the kind of traditional tech workplace, especially working for companies that, that have like productivity metrics, um, like lines of code or number of commits or something like that. And, uh, you know, it was really difficult for for both of these friends, you know, to operate in an environment where you're expected to have very consistent output day over day and, um, you know, not having accommodation or not having the ability to, to design their work in such a way that, like, you know, maximizes the positives of how they work and minimizes the negatives of how they work. Is that something you've struggled with as well?
3: Yeah, uh, and that's so unfortunate that your friends, because it, like I said, I feel like it is a superpower, and most workplaces should they should be trying to like harness it and understand that you can have like really really awesome employees with ADHD if you kind of set them up for success, they can be so successful. But yeah, it is something. So I've only ever worked at a flight, but actually, when I was interviewing over five years ago now, and sort of doing trying to find my first job in tech after. Doing a boot camp. I interviewed at a couple different places and none of them felt super great. But obviously, you know, I was just really eager to get my first job. But then I went into A-Flight, and A-Flight was one of the places where I really, really did want to work there and was really excited for the interview. But when I got to the office, it was very quiet and there was an open workspace, but people were working very quietly and there were like lots of rooms. And I got into that and I was like, oh, Thank God, like this is exactly the space I need. Like I can't handle too much activity. I can't handle, you know, offices where they're actually like playing music. Like that type of thing is my nightmare. And I don't actually like wearing headphones all day. Like that that's not just like a sort of easy fix for me and for a lot of people with ADHD. So I felt like right away, like now I want to work here even more. And I've been really lucky that it's it's been a really sort of like good setup for someone like me to work. And I, I have gotten some accommodations, which has been good. And I feel like, you know, people, if you don't give accommodations, like that's, you know, they're breaking the law, like they need to do that.
1: This is really, really validating, because I've had, I've had similar experiences of that sort of like, even just this morning, where I was in the code, and I had no idea how much time was going by, and I had no, no awareness of anything else. And that's possible because of the environment I, I have that I work in, uh, Whereas previous jobs I've had with bullpens and, uh, you know, just open office plans, I was incredibly miserable there. And I didn't understand how people could get any work done in those environments. So just, uh, just this understanding of how people are different and what environment some people thrive in and some, and other environments, other people thrive in.
3: Yeah. So have you always worked from home or has this been like a pandemic thing?
1: Uh, This has been probably about 10 years yeah <laughs> i went home and never left <laughs> nice i've done something very
2: similar i started working from home i think in 2015 and not for a great reason but uh i found like it, the exact same thing that you're talking about like i'm very sensitive to my environment i use music to control my mood and like you either i hate headphones so um I do wonder, like, uh, you mentioned accommodations and and the legal perspective on that. In Illinois, uh, where Eva, you you live in Illinois, too. Are you local for a flight?
3: Yeah, I'm in Chicago.
2: We have at-will employment. And, uh, you know, it's really easy to discriminate against folks on multiple axes rather than providing accommodations with at-will employment. They can just let you go and you, like, have no proof that... It was because they're, you know, ableist or racist or transphobic mm. or whatever.
3: Ugh, yeah, that's so rough. Pritzker's got to get on that. Our yeah. darn.
2: So uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about the book that you just wrote? I understand uh, a lot of people are finding a lot of value in it and uh, really opening their eyes to a lot of maybe issues they weren't aware of.
3: Yeah. So, yeah, my book, Design for Safety, came out in early August. and. Yeah, it's, it's been really great to see people's reactions to it. I got my first sort of like formal book review, which was really cool. And it was overall very positive, which has been very exciting. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful that it is helping people understand that this is a thing because it's sort of different, I feel like, than a lot of other problems. Someone else explained this to me recently, and ha- I had this sort of light bulb moment that I'm not providing a solution to a problem that people like know that they have this problem, like how their tech is used for interpersonal harm. And now I have a solution, like, here's this book that's going to tell you how to fix it. It's more that people don't even know that this is a problem. And I'm also, so I'm like educating on that as well as like trying to give some of the solutions on how to fix it. So it has been a lot of people just saying like, I had no idea about any of this. It's been so eye opening. And now I'm going to think about it more and like do these different things. So that's been really great to see that just people, the awareness is going up, basically.
0: I really like the, on the website, the sentence that there's a a pullout quote, or I'm not sure if it's even a, a pullout quote, but it says, if abuse is possible, it's only a matter of time until it happens. There's no might. So let's build better, safer digital products from the start. That's, I like that.
3: Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I was very intentional. And this, well, this kind of goes back to when I was doing a conference talk before I wrote the book, I did a conference talk called Designing Against Domestic Violence. And I thought a lot about like the type of language should I use? Should I say like might happen or should I say like will happen? And I sort of eventually settled on like, it's all, it's going to happen even if it hasn't happened yet. Or we, you know, oftentimes I think we just don't know that it's happened, you know, people who have gone through domestic violence, you know, some of them will talk openly about it, but most people just don't, which makes sense. It's this really intense personal thing to go through. And there's so much sort of like judgment and survivors get blamed for all these things. So it makes sense that people don't want to talk that much about it. I ended up thinking like, we just need to say like that it will happen. That's
1: amazing. So, like, I really want to know everything about this book. Uh, but to start with, you know, you said the book is designing for safety, and you kind of you kind of went into this a little bit with domestic violence, violence, and abuse. Can you talk about safe from what? What sort of things you you mean when you say safety there?
3: Yeah, for sure. Because I know safety is like a big word that can mean a lot of different things. But the way that I'm talking about it in my work is. In terms of interpersonal safety so it's like how is someone who has a relationship with you in an interpersonal way going to use technology like weaponized technology in a way that it was not meant to be used like the you know it's we aren't designing tech with these sort of use cases in mind but how are how is it ultimately going to be weaponized for some type of abuse domestic violence is really the emphasis and sort of my my big focus and i have like was mentioned in the intro, some background in domestic violence space. But there's also issues with child abuse and elder abuse, especially in terms of surveillance of those groups, as well as surveillance of workers is another thing that came up a lot as I was researching that I didn't get as much into in the book. But it's basically like anytime there's an interpersonal relationship, and someone has access to you in this sort of like personal way where you're not just an anonymous stranger, like how How is tech going to be used to exert some form of control or abuse over that person?
1: Wow. That is a very important subject. So I'm an engineer who doesn't have a lot of knowledge about uh, interpersonal violence, domestic abuse, that any of that, anything of that nature. And I know you've written a whole book. (laughs) Um, So, and we only have like an hour or so here, but what are the, what are the, First things uh, that people and engineers need to know about this.
3: Yeah, so I think the first thing is to sort of understand that this is a problem and that it's it's happening, and to sort of go through some different like examples of how this happens, which is what the first couple chapters of the book are all about. It's like different forms of this interpersonal abuse via technology in the form of. Uh, shared accounts is a really big one. And sort of this question of who has control and um, nebulous issues of control. There's also surveillance is a really big one and then location data as well. So, you know, I guess I don't want to say like, Oh, just read the book, but like learning a little bit about like the sort of different, there's so many different examples of how this works just to kind of like start to, I guess, build that like mental model of how this happens. Like someone, you know, taking advantage of certain affordances within like a shared bank account software or someone using an internet of things device to gaslight someone or torment them. Uh, there's so many different examples. Uh, location data shows up in all sorts of really sneaky ways in terms of stocking. It's not, it's not purely um, like putting a tracker on someone's car or even, you know, like Google maps and sharing your location is a more straightforward thing, but there's also, it shows up in other ways, like a grocery store app, that has a timestamp and location, you can learn someone's grocery shopping habits. And maybe you're estranged from this person, or they've left you because you're abusive. But they don't know that they're actually their stuff is showing up in this app um, and their location data. So it shows up in all sorts of different ways. So I think this is a very long way to answer your question. But I think the first thing is to start to like understand how this stuff works so that you're just aware of it. And then, you know, from there, there's, I have a whole chapter about how to sort of like implement a practice of designing for safety at your company. And it is a little more design focused, but I think engineers can absolutely be doing this work too, even if it's just like quick research on like, yeah, how are any product with like any type of message feature is going to be used for abuse. And there's lots of literature out there. So just like looking at some articles, thinking about ways that aren't covered already that, you know, just having a brainstorm about what are some new ways this might be used for abuse and then thinking about how to prevent them
2: one of the things that uh, that i was thinking about after reading your book eva is uh kind of at at a meta level or kind of zooming out a bit i think a lot of the ways that we design software we have this like idealized and homogeneous notion of a user and uh i think that in a lot of cases Especially if you're working on a project that's like more or less one of those scratch your own itch problems, you tend to think of yourself as the user. And it's great to have that empathy for the end user. But what we don't have, I don't think as a, as a field is an understanding that, you know, user is an abstraction and it is a useful abstraction. But sometimes you need to zoom down a little bit and understand the different ways that people want to use the software and will use the software and what makes them different from this like average idealized user. And that was one of the things that really struck me, especially from the process you were describing is expanding our understanding of what user means and uh, anticipating like the different use cases with hostile users, with actually actively abusive users. And uh, I think, uh, you know, Thinking in abstraction is super helpful, but I, I feel like sometimes we, we need to zoom down and think differently about about really who the people are and what their circumstances might be.
3: Yeah. Oh man, I just wrote on what you said. User is an abstraction. Like that's such a good way to think about it that I haven't heard before, but it's you're absolutely right that it's encapsulating like such a big group of people, even if it even it like for a small product, you know something that's not like Twitter that's open to like billions of people, even something that's like, you know, a subscription or something that's going to have a smaller user base. There's going to be like such a diverse, different sort of group within there. And to just think of the term user as like a catch-all is definitely problematic. Sorry. I'm just, I'm like, just processing this user is an abstraction like that term because we use it so much as designers definitely and anyone in tech is like always using this term but kind of like problematizing that term in a new way is really interesting to me but yeah and i think my other thought about this is that like we talk a lot about like you know needing to think about more than just the happy path and i feel like even that at least in my experience has been Other things that are also very important where it's like, let's think about someone who like, you know, has a crappy Wi-Fi connection or someone who's low vision. Like there are all these other sort of very important things to think about in terms of accessibility and inclusivity. And I think I'm, I kind of see like what I'm doing as just adding like another group into the mix of like, let's think about people who are currently surviving domestic violence, which is like maybe a little bit harder to bring up than the those other two that I mentioned because it's just so dark and it's like something that we just don't want to have to think about or talk about like, you know, during work. It's just such a bummer, but it is really important to sort of have this new group added when we're thinking about like inclusive and accessible tech.
1: There's a really great parallel here, I think, with with security-minded design and, and and research. You know, it's again, that's another user who is not behaving in the happy path. That's not behaving the way your your normal users are behaving, and you have to design your system in such a way to be resilient to that. And so, I love I love like this user as an abstraction, and then breaking it down uh, into all these ways, and then also there's a there's a huge value to diversity in your team. With this sort of thing, you Absolutely. can understand the very different types of users? Having people on the team who can understand black hat users who are going to be mm-hmm. trying to use your servers to, to mine Bitcoin, or <laughs> blind users, low vision users, or any, or you know, colorblind users, for goodness sake. And then, in addition to that, people again who are experiencing domestic violence, other ter- terms of other forms of interpersonal abuse. Mm-hmm. And just being able to understand all those users and their experiences with the things you're building and designing.
3: Yeah, definitely. Those are all really good points. And just like going back to what you said about the parallels with security is something I've actually been thinking about that a lot because I think there are like lots of parallels to that or like useful things about how like security professionals sort of think about their work and operate. Especially the big one for me right now is thinking about like a security professional, they're never going to be like, okay, like we did it. Like mm-hmm. our system is secure. We don't like, we're done. Like we have arrived. Like that's not a thing. And I feel like it's very similar with designing for safety or, or even like inclusion. Like there's just, you're never, I don't, I think it's, I feel like we've had a sort of like mental model of, I can like think about these things. I can like check these boxes. And now my, my product is, inclusive or my product is accessible. And I feel like that's just not like, I feel like we should be thinking more like security professionals where there's always going to be more things. Like we always have to be sort of like vigilant about like, what's the next way that someone's going to misuse tech or, or the, the group that we're, that's going to be identified that we've totally left out and is being harmed in some way. So I think that's just like a useful sort of shift that I'm just thinking a lot about.
2: And Damian, I'm so glad you brought up the parallels with security. I was actually going there as well. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about, like from an ethical source perspective, is in security that I think two tools that would be super useful are, first of all, personas. And secondly, understanding, well, I guess, three things. Understanding that safety can be a matter of adding layers of friction, to disincentivize abusive behavior, and like you said, recognizing this is an ongoing arms race. Every new feature that you design opens up some kind of attack or abuse vector, and uh, you know if you're not planning for that from the outset, you're gonna you're gonna be caught later when harm has been done.
3: Yeah, absolutely. There is, since you brought up personas, there is something in the process that I created that's sort of like similar tool where I call them archetypes because they're not they're a little different from personas but it's like identifying like who is the abuser in this scenario and who is the survivor and what are their goals and that's basically it we don't need to get into anything else I don't think but just like articulating those things and then like even having like a little printout kind of similar to the idea with personas like oh you can you know print them out for your sales team or whoever it is to like keep these people in mind like a similar idea of just having them printed out and on your wall so that it's something that you're thinking about like oh we have this new feature we we probably need to think about how is this sort of abuser person that we've identified who would want to use our product to like find the location data of their former partner or whatever it is yeah use this
2: from sort of a mechanical perspective, Eva, one of the uh, one of the the challenges I had at uh, at GitHub when I was working on community and safety is that the other engineers and the other groups were creating so many new features. I felt like the the knowledge about how features can be abused or, like you said, will be abused, wasn't spread very effectively throughout, especially a large software organization, and it kind of fell on. You know, a small team of folks who frankly were, were like not consulted. And, uh, you know, we, a feature would, would go out and we'd be like, holy crap, you can't do that because of this, this and this. So do you have any, um, do you have any thoughts? I know you said like, you know, print it out or put it on the wall, but do you have any thoughts for like how to, to spread that? Awareness and that that mode of thinking across teams who, frankly, may be very very focused just on feature delivery, and we'll see any any kind of like consideration like that as slowing them down or you know having negative negative impact on quote unquote productivity.
3: Mm. Yes, I have many thoughts. <laughs> I feel like uh, so this is this is kind of bringing up something for me that I've struggled with and thought about is should there be specialized teams in this area? And I do think, I mean, I feel like, yes, we want people with special knowledge and experts and that's really important. But also I feel like the ideal scenario is that it's just everyone's job. Those teams were already doing things and it wasn't seen as, Oh, Coraline's team is going to come in and oh, we have to consult with those people or whatever, because it's not our job. It's their job. Yeah. Which, you know, this isn't, a very maybe satisfying answer to your question because I feel like it involves a huge shift in the way that we think about this stuff. But it is something I've I've thought about in terms of like, should I call myself like a safety designer? Is that something I want to do? Do I want this to be like a specialized role? Maybe is that a goal where people start to see that? Because there are, you know, people who specialize in like inclusive design or accessible design. But then, you know, the downside of that is does that just give someone else even more leeway to be like, not my job? I don't have to worry yeah. about this. And then we have the problems like what you just described. So yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's such a big yeah. shift that needs to happen.
2: One of the models I've been thinking about, I and I I was thinking of this in terms of like generalists versus specialists, is uh I think generalists were or, or to map that to the domain that, that we're talking about now, like the other engineers in your group or in your company. There has, I feel like there has to be a balance between like specialization and general knowledge. And uh, the way I describe that is like everyone should have literacy on a particular mm. topic and like the basic vocabulary for it and like a general knowledge of the concepts augmented by a specialist who has fluency. So kind of a, a dynamic relationship between literacy and fluency. Do you have any thoughts on that?
3: I love that. I'm like literally writing that down. A generalist with literacy and a specialist with fluency is such a good way to think about it because, yeah. And I, I feel like I do say this. I don't want people who read my book or see my talk to think like, oh, I have to be like her. I have to learn all this stuff. I have to like really dig into, you know, how domestic violence works and like, you know, what it means and laws and like, it's, you know, I don't necessarily I don't want people to feel like they have to do that because it is like just such a dark, heartbreaking thing to have to yeah like think and read about every day. And I don't think that's like a realistic goal. But yeah, I think like being a generalist with literacy is absolutely realistic, augmented by a specialist with fluency. I mean, I'm just like basically repeating what you just said. But <laughs> yeah, it's that's just like a really brilliant way to think about it
1: that pattern actually uh really matches something that I learned from another greater than code guest. I'm sorry. I can't remember their name right now. I believe we were talking about inclusivity and what they said was, was like, it's not, it's not the expert's job to make the product of the company inclusive. It's the expert's job to support. It's everybody's job to make it inclusive. It's the expert's job to be an expert in it and to support them. And they, we also, we also use the, again, a metaphor from security. You know, we don't have, we don't have security experts whose job it is to make your app secure. We have security experts whose job it is to support everybody in keeping your app secure. Yeah. And so I feel like that this this matches really well. You're the the job, the, this sort of the expertise in this work, the job of the person with this expertise is to support, to educate, to guide, not because they can't do all the work together all themselves like like Coraline said you know there's just too many features being added for <laughs> for yeah. some team somewhere to go oh no this is fine or that's not fine.
3: Yeah totally and I feel like that just brought up something for me Damien about the speed at which we work and like too many features being added like not enough time to like actually like kind of do this work and how uh, just I mean this is you know getting at like just a way bigger critique of like tech in general yeah. but like yeah, it's like, it's okay to like slow down once in a while. And I feel like, yeah, just the, the urgency thing is causes so many, so many problems outside of just what we're talking about. But this is another big one that I feel like it's okay to spend an afternoon thinking through what are the ways this is going to be not inclusive or unsafe. And that's totally fine. But I also, you know, I fall into it too, where I'm like, I want to deliver things quickly for my client or like if I'm doing something internal for a flight, like I want to, I want to get done quickly. I don't want to hold people up. So it is a really hard thing to break out of.
2: And it seems to me that, uh, that this kind of knowledge or this kind of literacy or this kind of, uh, you know, making it part of the process can fall solely on engineers because in a lot of places we have product managers who are like setting deadlines for us. How do you communicate to them why this work is so important? And when they may only see it as like, well, you're getting in the way of us hitting a release date and we have a press release ready or we wanna debut this feature at a particular time or
0: place. And now we wanna take a quick timeout to recognize one of our sponsors, Kapersky Labs. Rarely does a day pass where a ransomware attack, data breach, or state-sponsored espionage hits the news. It's hard to keep up or know if you're protected. Don't worry, Kapersky's got you covered. Each week, their team discusses the latest news and trends that you may have missed during the week on the Transatlantic Cable Podcast, mixing in humor, facts, and experts from around the world. The Transatlantic Cable Podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Go check it out!
3: Yeah, totally. So I think, like, ideally, this comes from everyone. My book is called Design for Safety. But I really hope that people are reading it who are also, you know, engineers and who are also project managers, basically, like anyone who has a say in how the how the product is actually going to function, I think should be doing this work. But specifically, you know, if you have like a a project manager who is, you know, rushing everyone and, and saying, we don't have time for this, I do have a couple different strategies Sort of in my book about this, where it's like we can use statistics to talk about that this is a this is a thing that is like impacting a lot of our users. You know, it's one in three women, one in four men in the U.S. have experienced severe physical domestic violence, um, and that's just severe physical domestic violence. Like that's there's so much domestic violence that doesn't have a, a physical component to it. So you know that could be like a third of our user base. So bringing stuff up like that to try to get some buy-in. But then also my process, I have little like time estimates. So saying like, we want to do research, it's going to be six hours. We want to do a brainstorm, it's going to be two hours. Giving people very specific things that they can say yes to is always going to be better than just like an open-ended, like we want to design for safety. And someone being like, I don't know what that means, but like we have a deadline. Instead saying like, we're going to do a brainstorm to identify ways that our product will be used for harm we want to do it next week and we want to spend four hours on it. It's going to be a lot better.
1: And I, I don't want to call out how important and useful the language you use there was. You said, you know, because, because when you find something, when you do that, when you do that brainstorm or that, or that, or whatever, or, or whatever analysis process you go like, Oh, here's the way our products will be used for harm. Cause if you say, if you say to a product manager, here's the way our product might be used for harm. They go, well, okay. <laughs> Might not be. Let's <laughs> if you say, here's what here's where our product will be used for harm. Well, <laughs> now that leaves a lot less wiggle
3: room. Mm, yeah. That's a really good point that I actually hadn't thought about. And I think the other thing is, you know, there's like tangible outcomes from something like that brainstorm or these different activities that I sort of have outlined. It's a very, like, you can actually show the person, like, here's what we did. Like, here's what we came up with, which, you know, isn't, necessarily I wish we didn't have to like always do that like always have some some type of very explicit outcome from every everything we do but I do think that's a reality that that we have that this process kind of helps with
2: I kind of want to go back to the user thing um, again one of the things that we're thinking about in an ethical source is thinking beyond the user and thinking about not just who is using the technology that we're creating, but the people that the technology we're creating is being used
3: on. Yes. That's such a good point. I'm actually curious, have you come up with like a term for that that type of user like non user?
2: I have not yet, but that's a, a great call out. I should uh language is so important. Well,
1: so yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I don't know that it exists and like I've I've seen non user. But I've I gotten, don't know that that's agreed upon. Yeah. yeah,
1: I've gotten as far. The best I've come up with is constituency. That is very interesting,
3: Damien,
2: because uh, one of the things we're developing as a governance tool, um, the W3C, when they were working on the HTML standard, this was a couple of a couple of years ago, I think. They had a they mentioned something called a priority of constituencies, and this was very much from a standards body kind of perspective. But it was one sentence, and I think it is such a powerful sentence. And just for their example, they said, uh, we favor in times of conflict, we prioritize end users over developers, over browser manufacturers, over spec writers, over technical purity. And like that <laughs> writing that wow. down, and that's like one sentence, right? But writing that down, I think can really help cut through a lot of uh, a lot of the noise and a lot of, you know, the gray area, maybe that's the most encounter. And it's so simple and you can do it in a single sentence. And so absolutely the notion of constituencies and being explicit about whose safety convenience or what have you you're optimizing for.
3: Yeah. That's really important. And I, yeah, I have, I have two thoughts. One is that this comes up a lot in like the surveillance space where, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like who, what sort of rights or like priority should we be giving someone who is like walking on the sidewalk in front of a house that has a ring camera that's like facing out, you know, to like capture the porch, but is ultimately capturing like the sidewalk and the street. What are the rights of that person, that non-user who has not agreed to, Filmed and isn't you know part of this product's ecosystem, but is still being impacted by it. It's like it's something I think about a lot, especially there's so many in my neighborhood. I see now that I've like since I wrote the book, I just I see the ring cameras like everywhere, including in places where they're not really supposed to be, like on the outside of like someone's gate, just facing the sidewalk. It's like you're not even recording your own property at that point. Yeah. It's just the gate, uh, or it's just the sidewalk. I mean, which I feel like is very problematic. And you also said that like. It's important to sort of explicitly call out who you're prioritizing, and that's something I read this book called Design Justice by Sasha costanza chalk which was like very life changing, and it's such a good book. It's a little more like theoretical. Um, She explicitly says it's not a it's not a guide, but she talks about this about how it's really important to if you are going to choose like not to be like inclusive or safe or justice focused, whatever it is, you need to, you need to explicitly like, say we are choosing to prioritize the comfort of this group over the safety of this group or whatever it is. Like you need to actually just like spell that out and be upfront about it.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of, I think I learned this from Marlena Compton, although I don't know if she originated. um, I guess she probably didn't, but the phrase she taught me uh, was we prioritize the safety of the mar- of marginalized people yeah. over the comfort of non-marginalized people. And that was, it's such a, it's such a powerful statement. It really is. Like, yeah. And just, and just making it explicit. Like these are the trade-offs and these are where we side on them. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Oh yeah. That's such a good one. Especially I did this workshop recently about, it's called like how, traditional design thinking protects white supremacy Mm -hmm. but they talked a lot about how like the the sort of feeling like entitled to comfort is just such a white supremacist thing and i feel like shows up in you know sort of different forms of oppression as well like men's comfort etc but but that's something i've been thinking about a lot is is the feeling of a right to comfort and and how that also includes like a Right to not have to have any type of conflict and like a fear of conflict, Mm. how these things all play together and how it's all part of sort of white supremacy and how it shows up in our culture, in our workplaces. And yeah, it's been, it was a great workshop. I would highly recommend it because it's also been sort of like a life-changing thing as I digest all of the different things from it
1: it's so powerful to to name that as comfort like yeah this is what we're protecting we're protecting these people's comfort and <laughs> and this is what it will cost
2: <laughs> i think about uh yeah. i think about what kim creighton uh said for years like get comfortable with being uncomfortable
3: yeah that's such a good one. Uh, i love her yeah I quoted her in my book about, oh, I forget what it is. It's something about, like not having strategy is chaos. Oh um, my God. Strategy. I
2: learned so much um, from her from that one statement. That was like literally life changing for me. That was literally life changing for me because like I always had like a negative feeling about strategy. Like strategy is kind of coercive or kind of like insincere. And then uh, another friend of mine I was talking to about it said, uh, strategy is good when it's not a zero-sum game. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, I think we, maybe we can think about, um, you know, personal safety and ab- abuse factors kind of in that way.
3: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, I think the full quote is intention without strategy That's, is chaos. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. And yeah, yeah I, I did, that has been like very definitely influential for me and as i feel like part a big part of the reason like that sort of idea is like why i wrote my book and and did my conference talk is because i was feeling like kind of frustrated with it's it's a lot easier to sort of like raise awareness about an issue than it is to like find actually like have actual strategies for like fixing it and i felt like i would always get like really fired up like reading something or listening to a talk and be like yeah this is such a huge problem we need to fix it and then didn't have like a takeaway or like anything that I could really do at work Mm -hmm. other than just sort of being told to like, uh, think about this or consider this, which I'm like, when do I do that? And what (laughs) does that look like? And Yeah. yeah. Like you can't think about all of the different things we need to think about from nine to five while we're at work every day. We need a, a strategy to like do that, which is why I like made sort of the different activities that I have in my process. But okay. Going back to this white supremacy and design workshop that I did, I also learned in there about how like some other ways that white supremacy shows up is having an action bias and a sense of urgency Yeah. Mm. and how a lot of that can come from people, especially white people not being able to like sit with discomfort mm-hmm. when mm. we're, f- when we're faced with really uncomfortable topics and a, a want, like a desire to sort of like jump into action before we fully understand the problem and have internalized it. So now I'm sort of like, feeling like I need to like backtrack a little bit and be like, yes, like provide action, but also it is good to do deep learning. Like, I think we need both, but I feel like a lot of people, it's kind of like one or the other, like let's do a ton of learning or let's like jump right into action. And I have always been a jump right into action person. And now I'm realizing like, it's okay to like take a beat and do some deep learning and just sit with all the discomfort of the, of the heavy topic.
2: Uh, a friend of mine gave me a, a concept that I like a lot. He, def- he has a definition of ergonomics that is uh, the marriage of design and ethics. And uh, when I use the term ergonomics in that sense, what I mean is like, how easy is it to do a particular action? And one of the things that I see quite a bit, uh, something I think is, is a, a terrible consequence of the web, frankly, is, uh, is putting ergonomics behind paywalls and asking people who use our software to yield some degree of agency or digital autonomy or security in exchange for features.
3: Mm, So interesting.
2: So I'm kind of curious, like how you would maybe how you would frame um, designing for safety, some of the other um, axes of oppression that that we've discussed on the show today, from the perspective of like, the ethical aspect of our design ce- design decisions, what workflows are we optimizing for? What workflows are we putting behind, you know, a paywall or in exchange for, okay, we're, we're gonna, you're gonna, you're signing up, you know, the EULA says you're buying into surveillance capitalism and uh, you just simply have to do that. If you want an email account, if you want a Twitter account, what have you.
3: Yeah. I do feel like there is a bit of an issue with putting like safety and security sometimes behind a paywall where you can literally pay more, you know, to like not get advertised to, for example, which uh, it's like, I, I get that like products have to charge money and it's like, we shouldn't, you know, the flip side of that is like, well, we can't just like work for free. And I see that a lot with like journalism when people are like, you know, sort of criticizing paywalls and it's like, well, but like journalists have to get paid. They can't work for free just like everyone else but i do feel like that with you know things like being able to like opt out of advertising and i feel like there are other things nothing's coming to mind right now but like different ways that you can kind of ease some of the crappier parts of tech if you have enough money to sort of like buy into the paid versions of things is definitely problematic and like who are we keeping out when we do that and who are we saying like doesn't deserve these sort of this privacy and the safety And like, what should just be standard? Like the seatbelt. I'm obsessed with the history of the (laughs) seatbelt.
2: I saw that video that's been going around.
3: (laughs) I've talked about this in many different places, but like the seatbelt used to be something that you had to like pay extra for. It was like in today's dollars, it would have been like 300 extra dollars when you bought a car to get seatbelts. And like only 2% of people in 1956 when they were introduced actually paid for them and probably even less like were actually using them. And then there was like, a revolution in the auto industry where, you know, led by activists and everyday people, it did not definitely not come from the auto industry. They had to be forced into these different things. But now seatbelts, like the government basically said, like you cannot, they passed a law and they said, you have to just include seatbelts as a standard feature. And I think about that a lot in tech, like the things now that we're making people pay for, should some of those just be standard features? And how are we going to get there? Probably government regulation after a lot of activism and everyday people sort of, you know, rallying against these different things with big tech. But I think we're going to get there with a lot of things and we're going to see a lot of like seatbelts, so to speak, become just like standard features and not something you have to pay for.
2: And I wonder, uh, you mentioned government regulation. I have literally zero faith in government doing anything effective in the online world at all, because our government is, uh, is powered by 65 year old white men that are rich. And, you know, there's no incentive for them to care about this, even if they did have like the, uh, basic literacy about how this stuff works. It seems to me, um, one of the things that we've been seeing, um, really emphasized, especially during and post lockdown is worker organizing. And, uh, I wonder, uh, I wonder if like, uh, if there's a strategy here for, You know, empowering the engineers who, frankly, like we are being treated like rock stars right now, and I hate that term rock star, but that's we're overpaid, uh, we're pampered. A lot of a lot of folks, obviously, not everyone. So, can we leverage our power? Can we leverage the privilege of being in such an in-demand profession? to, you know, to affect change in organizations that have no financial incentive to think about stuff like this at all.
3: Yeah, so many things I want to respond to. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely, I think worker power is like, such a strong point in all of this. And I mean, I think, you know, we, I feel like we are the ones like leading out on this, a lot of it is coming from people who work in tech and understand the issues like writing and speaking and doing these different things to help everyday people who don't work in tech understand like, Hey, actually like, here's why Facebook is really terrible. You know, a lot of that is coming from people in tech, even you know, like former Facebook employees even, yeah. so, which is like different, I think from like, you know, the paradigm shift we had with the auto industry. I don't think, I guess I, I don't know. I would have to look, but I'm pretty sure that was not coming from like car designers and engineers yeah. weren't like helping lead that charge the way that we are. Um, but I also want to, respond to something you said about tech workers being overpaid and pampered, which like, yes, I agree with you. But I also think there are some privileges, there are privileges that everyone should have and that no one should have. And I feel like everyone deserves to be well paid and to be comfortable and have all these sort of like perks and whatnot. And you know, I come from like, I had a career in nonprofit before this. So I have so much like internalized just baggage about and guilt around feeling with my pay and my benefits and all these things. And the work I do now compared to the work I was doing in the nonprofit, which was helping kids who had basic were basically on a road to dropping out before graduating high school, which was really important work. And I made so much less money and worked so much harder. But I feel like, you know, I feel like everyone deserves to be sort of as well paid as we are. And it is possible. Yes. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there as well. That we, I feel like I'm trying to just like absolve myself from like being like a well paid like tech worker, but um, but I do think like we deserve this, and also everyone else deserves yes. similar treatment.
0: Absolutely,
1: yeah, I'm I'm, I'm uh, I, I feel the same way, you know, especially like to take an example with within a tech company, uh, as an engineer, I get paid a lot more than the customer service people, yeah, and. That doesn't mean I'm overpaid. It means they're underpaid. Yeah. A lot.
3: Yeah. Yeah, And I feel like this whole conversation, honestly, this is like, this is a freaking tactic. This is like, this is what the sort of people at the top, this is how they want us to feel. Pitting us against each other, feeling like it's not that, you know, the salespeople, like that's normal and we're overpaid. It's like, no, actually we're paid like a livable amount where we can live comfortably. And they're, they're exploited, you know, even more than we are. Like, I feel like that's that's how I'm trying to like think about things because I do feel like this other way of looking at it is just absolutely a tactic of the I don't know, the one percent, whatever you want to call them. The company leaders definitely don't want us to feel like we're they would rather us feel that, that we're that we're overpaid and pampered than just like compensated for the labor we do in a fair way. I us feel
0: the shame and guilt around it too. I mean, before I was in tech, I mean, I went from welfare to making a reasonable standard of living in a year. And sometimes I still feel guilty about it. It's a heck of a feeling. Yeah. And I feel like that, that
3: didn't just come out of nowhere. Like we've been taught that we should feel guilty for just like, surviving i don't know cuz i think even even in tech it's a lot of people there's still so many issues with like with burnout with you know i don't know about you all my body sometimes just hurts from like not moving enough during like there's still all these like different things that could be better but you know the feeling that we should feel guilty for having like some comfort and decent pay like i think that's definitely like a strategy that has come from these like different powerful groups you know, it didn't just come out of nowhere.
2: I, I appreciate y'all pushing back on that. I guess uh, I'm kind of speaking from a kind of an emotional place. Eva, you went from nonprofit the tech. Um, in April, I went from tech into nonprofit. And I'm really like personally, like I took a 30% pay cut. And, uh, oh, wow, you know, it just really made very, uh, very visible and very personal seeing what we value as a society and in uh, and what we don't value as a society. And, you know, I'm I'm still comfortable. I still have a, a living wage and everything. But, uh, you know, look at what happened during lockdown with, quote unquote, frontline workers. You know, they're heroes, but we don't want to pay them more than minimum wage. Um, so mm-hmm. I definitely uh, I definitely agree with what you're saying about other people being underpaid. and uh, I definitely hear what you're saying about that guilt. But you know, guilt is a form of discomfort. What are you gonna do with it? What are you gonna do with the privileges and the power that that we have as a result of the way we're treated in this industry? I feel like that's that's the more important. Th- and like, what do you do with it? Like, are you giving back? Are you giving back in a substantive way, or are you giving back to assuage your guilt? You know, it's nuanced. As as y'all are pointing out, it is nuanced.
3: Yeah, it's very complicated. But yeah, I feel like agitating for those. I, sorry, Damon. You said, I think you said like support people, like getting paid more. I feel like that's something. We can agitate for like I know someone who like a a sort of I call her I'll call her an online friend of mine in the infertility space, which I'm very involved in as I go through my my journey. I hate that word, but I've made like all these sort of online friends who are going through it, and one of them is a paralegal, and she you know is obviously like hoping, although it's not going well, to get pregnant. And but she was looking into the parental benefits and realized that like the lawyers where she works had like Really, I think it's like eighteen weeks fully paid off, and then Mm -hmm. everyone else got like this weird piecemeal of like six weeks paid off, and then there's like FMLA, and then there's PTO, and like all this stuff that amounted to a lot less, and you had to like use all of your PTO and all these different things. And she actually was able to like, with some of the lawyers' help, I believe, get that policy changed so that it was just the same for everyone because it was like I didn't go to law school. So therefore I don't need as much time with my newborn. Like how does Hmm. that make sense? So I feel like, yeah, there is a lot of potential to sort of have more equity, equality in our companies, especially as the most powerful people often in the companies to sort of push for that change to happen. There needs to be a lot of solidarity, I think, between
0: these different types of workers.
1: Yeah. and And that's a great example of that.
0: Well, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation and I feel so privileged just to be sitting here kind of kicking back and just taking in the back and forth between the rest of you. I wrote down a bunch of things, but one of the biggest takeaways that I have had from this episode and especially if you've been listening to the show the past couple episodes we've been talking about a lot of accessibility things and Eva you said something that was just very it was like mind blowing for me and it shouldn't be mind blowing but it was cuz i was like didn't even ever think of that and what the hell is wrong with me for not even ever thinking about that but Inclusive and accessible includes people experiencing domestic abuse. Like, I just, it's not something because I guess because you, you, as what you said, people don't talk about it. So just keeping that in mind is, was, was pretty pertinent to me. And I also liked what, you know, Coraline said about, you know, specialization and then the generalist general knowledge and, and literacy versus fluency. That was really good as well. So it's been an awesome conversation. Thank you. Damien, what do you have?
1: Oh uh, well, I mean, this is this has been really awesome. And I wanna I wanna first thank Eva for for being our guest here and for the work you do and this book. Um and the thing the thing that's gonna be like sticking with me, I'll be reflecting on for a while is is this sentence, both well if the product can be used for harm, it will be. Mm -hmm. Which is not only like a really powerful thing to keep in mind when designing and building the thing, but also a a powerful sentence that is really useful in in sort of communicating these issues. So thank you very much for that.
2: Um, One of the things that, uh, and actually Eva, this was like a reaction I had uh, when I first read your book, is uh, we have, I think a lot of us, a growing number of us have at least an awareness if not a personal experience with how systems are weaponized against marginalized or vulnerable folks. So I think it's really important that in your book you focus like very specifically on a particular domain of abuse and uh, abuse of power and uh, loss of agency and loss of privacy, loss of physical safety. Um, One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is how like the internet has been really good for connecting people with shared experiences and creating communities around the shared experiences. But I do wonder, I do worry that you know we're breaking into smaller and smaller and smaller groups, and uh, I see that. I don't know if it's intentional, but it certainly is a way I think that we're propping up, uh, that we're being coerced into propping up these these uh, these systems by taking like a narrow view based on our own experiences. And I don't see that as a criticism. What I see it as is an opportunity to connect with other folks who experience that same kind of systemic damage in collaborating and trying to understand uh, the different challenges that we all face, but recognizing that a lot of it is based on, frankly, white supremacy and we used to talk about patriarchy. I think we the thinking broadly has kind of evolved beyond that. But uh, I would love to see you know your publisher start uh, start putting books together on um, different particular axes, but also looking at ways that we can like bridge the differences between these different experiences of uh, intentional or unintentional harm. So that's something that uh, I think I'm going to think about.
3: Nice. I can't. Any spoilers, but I do think my publisher might have something in the works that is kind of like getting at some of this stuff, Wonderful. which is exciting. Yeah, yeah. Okay, man, those were all so good. My reflection—I'm just thinking a lot about our conversation about the way that like people in tech might feel like we're overpaid or pampered, and how that feels like something like an intentional thing that has come from somewhere, you know, and that like things like that don't just you know, they all—it always comes from somewhere. And I'm thinking, Mandy, about what you said in your reflection. You said, "Like, what's wrong with me for not thinking about this?" And I always feel like when I hear people say things like that, it's like, "Well, when were you?" Like, it's—I think more like, "Who didn't teach you about this?" Mm-hmm. Is kind of mm-hmm. like, "Why wasn't this part of your education mm-hmm. as you were learning to code and before you joined the industry?" Um, and I feel like that's more where the blame lies than like with than with individuals, but yeah so I guess and and I feel like something I was thinking about earlier today before we started recording is that this idea of like user safety that it's like our job to to sort of keep ourselves safe on tech and there's so many like resources out there and different sort of like articles and different things and I feel like that's I've been thinking similarly about that 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 feels that's like a marketing campaign that's something that like the leaders of big tech have done to intentionally like shift responsibility from themselves and like onto the end user. Um, And we're expected to be like legal experts and read these agreements and like understand every single thing about a product that we're like, you know, no one uses every single feature, you know, but we're expected to understand it. And if we don't and something goes wrong, either like interpersonal harm, like what I do or with, you know, like there's, Oh, you know, someone guessed your password or whatever it was you know, it's kind of like your fault instead of instead of it being the tech company's responsibility. And I feel like that's another thing that I'm thinking like, that didn't come from nowhere. Like that came from somewhere. And yeah. it feels like a very intentional strategy that they've kind of, that big tech has used to sort of like blame us for when things go wrong. So not to say that we get to be absolved of everything, like people have responsibilities and, and whatnot. But I feel like a lot of times it's like this comes from somewhere and I'm trying to like think more about that kind of stuff. And this conversation was like really awesome for helping me sort of like process some of those and like expand my thoughts a little bit more. So thank you all. This is just like really
0: awesome.
2: Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for, you for, for being coming. Here. Yeah. So happy to talk to you. Eva.
0: Yeah, you too. All right, everyone. Well, with that, we will wrap up and I will say Put a plug in for our Slack community, you can join us and Eva will get an, an invitation as well to come visit us in Slack and keep these conversations going. Our website to do that is patreon.com slash greater than code. And Patreon is a subscription based thing that if you want to you can pledge to support the show Um, however if you DM any one of us and you want to be let in and you cannot afford or just simply don't want to monetarily support we will let you in for free so just reach out to one of the panelists and we'll get you in there so with that I will say thank you again thank you everybody